Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. For the first show of the new year in 2022, we feature Earth on the Edge. Twelve artists declare a climate emergency. Twelve artists declared a climate emergency in Earth on the Edge, an exhibition that explored the tipping points of unstoppable climate change, melting polar ice caps, an acidifying deoxygenated ocean, rain bombs, and extensive drought fire seasons. This exhibit was at New York City's Series Gallery, and today I speak with two of the artists involved, Marsha Annenberg and Angela Mano. Today on the Project Censored Show, Earth on the Edge. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're going to begin talking with two artists. Marsha Annenberg will be the first person that we speak with today, along with Angela Mano. Angela Mano is an award-winning artist based in New York City. Her mediums include encaustic oils, textile pastel, as well as egg tempera and gold leaf on wood. Her major solo exhibition, Conscious Evolution, The World at One, toured internationally and was seen by more than a quarter of a million people. The artwork featured in the exhibition became part of the permanent fine art collection of the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum. And Angela actually goes back with NASA a number of decades. Mano's works reside in many private collections throughout the Americas, the Middle East, Europe, and Southeast Asia. She lives in New York City and maintains a studio in Burlington, Vermont. On today's program, we're going to be talking about a new exhibit in New York City. And of course, we're going to focus a bit on Mano's work that looks at endangered species and wildlife extinction crisis that is ongoing. So Angela Mano, welcome to the Project Censored Show today. Thank you. It's great to be here, Mickey. And our next guest is Marsha Annenberg, who's a conceptual artist, and her artwork critiques the absence of critically important news stories. Well, if that doesn't tip you off, Marsha Annenberg, of course, is someone that we know at Project Censored and have known for a long time, and we've followed her work, and she's actually followed ours. We had the great pleasure of being able to feature Marsha Annenberg's artwork as the cover of our Censored 2014 book, No News is Good News. And Marsha's work has been featured the world over. Princeton School of Public and International Affairs hosted a lecture that Annenberg gave in conjunction with her solo exhibit, News Not News, at the Bernstein Gallery. Her essays and book cover have been published by Project Censored at Seven Stories Press. Also, she contributed a chapter on critical media literacy in the soon-to-be-published Eco-Art in Action, Activities, Case Studies, and Provocations for Classrooms and Communities. That's New Village Press. Again, Annenberg's been featured in solo and group exhibitions in museum and galleries throughout the United States, and her paintings are in permanent collections of museums in Lithuania, Israel, England, and the U.S. Well, today we're going to be focusing again on some of Annenberg's most recent work, and there is this intersection in her work between news, news media censorship, and the mass extinction and the current climate crisis that we all face. We're going to be also featuring later on the program excerpts from a fantastic and stellar panel that our guests today participated on. Let's begin with you, Marsha Annenberg. Let's talk about this exhibit 
Earth on the Edge. And maybe we can just, between both of you, uh, Marcia and Angela, maybe we can talk just a little bit about the, the kind of work you do a little bit first to set this up and what you hope to be doing with the work. And then we'll talk about some of the more specifics. And obviously, I think we're going to get into some about the news and education about the climate crisis. Marcia Annenberg. Mickey, thank you so much for having us. Now, first of all, what I want to say about the show Earth on the Edge is that Earth on the Edge is not a metaphor. The title Earth on the Edge actually is happening. It's real. It's a fact. Our ecosystems are on the edge of tipping points, which is so upsetting for so many people. And what's really unbelievable, Jimmy, absolutely unbelievable, is that no one, none of our scientists, None of our government officials can guarantee to us that we are not going to stay under 1.5 of warming. It's something that you can't fathom because the difference between staying under 1.5 or going over 1.5 or 1.6 or 1.7 or 1.8 is magnitudes of difference in our ecosystems. And so part of the exhibit is to educate the public. A lot of the artists talk about the ocean and the health of the oceans. Um, one of our artists is also a, a marine biologist, Dr. Nigella Hilgorth, and she studies the interaction of the atmosphere and ocean spray. Uh, Lois Bender talks about coral reefs. Simone Spicer uh, did a sculpture uh, influenced by Hokusai's Great Wave. And the problem with our oceans is that they have lost 2% of their oxygen since the 1950s because of warming. That means that not only will ocean creatures be affected by the loss of, loss of oxygen, we will also be affected because our air, our atmosphere comes from the ocean, as does the health of phytoplankton, which are addressed by Chrisanne Baker. She makes several paintings of phytoplankton and zooplankton. Our phytoplankton are endangered by the warming also, and it's because of phytoplankton that 50% of our oxygen comes from the photosynthesis of phytoplankton. Why would we want to endanger our phytoplankton? It doesn't make any sense. So this is where these are some of the issues that the exhibit addresses. And of course, Angela addresses the loss of species. You know, um, the wildfires in Australia decimated one third of the koala bear species. It's unbelievable. This heat dome off the coast of, uh, of the Pacific Northwest, off the coast of Vancouver, people don't know that one billion, billion, one billion sea creatures like mussels actually boil to death in the low tide. So it's earth on the edge is not a metaphor. That's the whole point. If there were metaphors, boil, boiling frogs comes to mind. Marsha Annenberg, in terms of what we know, I mean, and this is again, pretty profound what you just said should be something that everybody knows. The basic background information about our climate crisis that you just read down. We're obviously ignoring them at our peril. That's quite clear. My question to you is why isn't earth science a required subject in middle school and high school? Every child who comes out of middle school or high school should have a basic understanding. Even of ocean acidification, it's so basic. The water molecule is H2O. Carbon molecule is CO2. You combine them, they become H2CO3 carbonic acid. Our creatures in the ocean are 
being worn away by acid. Anyone who's an oyster farmer will tell you they can no longer farm oysters because they have to add something to the water to neutralize the acid. I mean, this is happening now. This started happening probably five years ago. And we know that the predictions, as they're called, right, from the scientific community, they've unfortunately been woefully off, meaning we've already passed benchmarks that previous scientific studies had said would take much longer for us to pass. So when you say Earth on the edge, not a metaphor, one wonders if we're over the edge. Absolutely. Even this summer in British Columbia, 500 people died in a week because the temperature had gone up historically by eight degrees. They had never seen an eight degree rise. I mean, 118 degrees in Canada? Who can believe 118 degrees in Canada? I couldn't believe it here, but I'm in Northern California, but we did experience something similar. It's here. Like you're saying, the, the climate crisis isn't something that we're being warned about. We're in it. And I know that the work that you do is really motivated by your great desire to inform people about it, to express various emotions about the things we're going through. And I know, Marcia Annenberg, your connection, too, is you talk about the climate crisis. You just mentioned earth science and why is this not something that's being widely taught enough? Why is this something that we're not dealing with? But you also talk about another issue near and dear to us that should be important to everybody as well, and that's critical media literacy. If we don't have a healthy news ecosystem, we don't hear about these critical, crucial, and important stories like climate crisis in the context of the actual factual reality that it really is. You know, Angela Mano, let's go to you for a moment. You focus on endangered species. In the book that we were able to utilize Marsha's great cover art, there's a chapter in it on the sixth extinction. Now, this book was six, seven years ago when scholars and people were talking about how we are already in the sixth extinction. It's another one of those things that's no longer a prediction or no longer we're teetering or no longer back to on the edge. We're over that edge. So, Angela Mano, talk to us about your ideas around what's happening with the climate and the connection to your work. Thank you for asking that question. I want to just go back, however, to something that was said about media literacy. I was in France listening to French talk radio. I happen to speak French. And I heard somebody calling. It was, it was in 2004, I think. It was just after we had invaded Iraq. And the question was, the Americans think they have such freedoms, but they don't even have the freedom to form an informed decision. They called it the liberté de jugement, the liberty of judgment. So that just tells you what a critically uh, dangerous situation we're in because that's the bottom line for policy. So if we don't have the liberty of making an informed decision, you know, we're, we're really to use a metaphor, our goose is cooked. So here's the thing. I've been approaching species extinction before the climate crisis really became as well known as it is now. Now, Marcia said in her introduction to the panel the other night that only what, 26% of the people are alarmed about what's going on? Uh, according to the Yale study. So, I was unaware pretty much when I started the series on uh, icons of endangered species, but I did know about the Holocaust of nature. 
in particular mass species extinction, which is uh, at a, it's at a rate of 10,000 to 100,000 per year, which is 1,000 times the natural rate. Based on these statistics, biologist E.O. Wilson estimates that if current trends continue, half of the Earth's animal and plant species will be extinct by the end of this century. Oh, absolutely horrific. And uh, the Audubon Society said the same thing about the North America's birds, that if greenhouse gas emissions keep rising, by 2100, two thirds of our bird species that we love so much will be gone. Well, an insect, we keep coming back to in the scientific community with the, the decimation of the insect population. Marcia, earlier you mentioned what's happening with the coral reefs, with a collapse of ocean health. It's always interesting to talk to you because it, it, it's a kind of a walk down memory hole lane of the top censored stories, you know, over the years, because we've covered so many of these stories. And uh, the figure you all both just mentioned from the panel the other day, the 26 percent, only 26 percent of people seem to think that this is a worry or a concern. Marcia Annenberg, again, back to the intersection of your work between the climate crisis and media literacy. Where are the other 74 percent? When I wrote a chapter for this book called Eco Art in Action, Activities and Case Studies, which is available now, I really used your foundation of how to teach global critical media literacy, how to structure a lesson plan around it. And of course, I adapted it for the art world. But the point is to get students interested in what is a news source, what is a verified news source, not Facebook, not Instagram. Uh, not Twitter, but, you know, actual, how do you verify real news? And just as earth science is important for students, so is media literacy because kids are bombarded with information and they have no way of evaluating what's true from what's false or what's factual from what's opinion. And look where that's led us uh, down a really slippery slope. It has. And I think that art in particular has a way of trying to at least make us aware that we're sliding on said slippery slope. And I want to talk more about the work in the exhibit you both have, but we need to take a quick break here. To remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue our conversation about an ongoing and a very recent art exhibition in New York City. It is Earth on the Edge. We're joined today by artists Angela Mano and Marsha Annenberg. We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we are focusing on the climate crisis, but we're doing so through the lens of art and critical media literacy. We are joined by two amazing artists. We are joined by Marsha Annenberg and Angela Mano. They are part of an exhibit in New York City called Earth on the Edge, 12 Artists Declare a Climate Emergency. And we're talking about how the planet Earth is burning up, literally. And according to the release for this, 12 artists declare a climate emergency in Earth on the edge. So it includes, of course, 
melting polar ice caps, acidification of the ocean, deoxygenating the ocean, rain bombs, extensive drought, fire seasons. And these people are really seriously trying to raise awareness around this and also address news media censorship around this issue, not just in the larger world, but also in the art community. Angela Mano, let's bring you in here now. I'd like for you to talk more specifically about the nature of your work and the messages you're trying to get across. So first of all, as I was saying earlier, I had started working around species extinction before I knew about very much about the climate crisis. So even without global warming, the destruction of wildlife and wildlife habitat has been going on at an alarming rate. So that's because of what E.O. Wilson has an acronym called HIPPO, and it lists the causes of species extinction in descending importance. The first is habitat destruction, and that's from logging, road building, mining, and agricultural conversion. That's your H for HIPPO. Second is invasive species. These are all human caused. Third is pollution, which we know. I mean, what's happening to the the seas and acidification and uh, oil spills. P, second P in hippo is human population. And O is for over-harvesting, which includes poaching, which I think people may know about. Say, for instance, the pangolin now is the most illegally trafficked animal on the planet and it's being poached to extinction because of this magical properties that's attributed to scales, which is the same stuff that's in our fingernails. It's not magical. And it's, it's uh, like the rhino horn and aphrodisiacs. So these factors have been decimating global biodiversity without even the factor of global warming. Now, global warming coming into the mix, of course, it's even worse. So. I want to just quote biologist E.O. Wilson again. He says, global warming is only the first of three environmental crises humanity has been destined to pass through in this century as a consequence of human actions, each related and impacting the others. Global loss of biodiversity is the only one that's irreversible because you can't make species once they're gone. The third environmental crisis is looming, which is a shortage of fresh water. Psychologically, all of the things that you both have been talking about here, these are tall orders. These are major, major challenges. And of course, given that people, we humans, are responsible for so much of this accelerated destruction of our own ecosystem, how how do you see piercing this bubble? How do you see people really understanding We've been told for years, recycle your plastic bottle and carry your own bag with you. Look, let's not be silly. I'm not saying those aren't good things when we act responsibly individually. But global capitalism and overproduction and consumption, this whole system is what's fueling the collapse of the ecosystem. Uh, It's not just what you ate for lunch yesterday. So I've been following the loss of news since the 1990s. Getting into the climate crisis, Dr. James Hansen, the uh, head of NASA for so many years, became my hero. He went to Congress, to Warren Congress in 1988. He went back in 2008. He gave a very important speech to Congress in 2008. And uh, 
I couldn't find it anywhere. I wanted to know what he was saying. And, and I eventually located his talk in the Guardian newspaper in England. And why wasn't it reported here? It was not reported because in his speech, he said, we need to hold the CEOs of oil, gas, and coal companies responsible for destroying Earth's environment and oceans. Well, who wanted to hear that, right? Because our energy systems were focused on oil, gas, and coal at that moment, at that point in time. So I became very aware and very uh, invested in who is reporting climate news and who isn't. And that's when I started focusing on scientific studies, like the IPCC reports and the National Climate Assessment. And the work that is on view at the exhibit uh, focuses on the, the emissions gap report, the UN's emissions gap report of 2019. What's important about that is that people have to know that the amount of greenhouse gas emissions we're emitting now are not in line with where we need to be to keep warming under 1.5 by 2030. But if people don't know what the level of greenhouse gas is, they won't understand why the report is so important. And we know that Shell and Exxon, we've covered this at Project Sensor for years. 40 years ago, they knew that they were contributing to this crisis and they decided to sit on that information and not share it. Exxon knew. Actually, they predicted the amount of 415 parts per million. They predicted where we were going to be in the 1970s. They were great scientists. Angela Mano, this is by design. So too is the ignorance, the manufactured ignorance that... Marsh Annenberg just alluded to in the corporate media, uh, just a lack of coverage of the severity of this. I mean, for years and years, we saw crazy weather and fancy nicknames for the whatever the crazy weather was, but there was no connection. Like the corporate media went out of their way. They did back backflips and somersaults to avoid connecting climate change, the climate crisis to the weather. And who's responsible? Who's responsible for it? Another artist, the late Utah Phillips, once sang and once said, the earth isn't dying, it's being killed, and the people killing it have names and addresses. In many cases, Earth on the Edge, you're calling attention to this. So let's go back to you, Angela Mano. Let's hear a little bit more about what you're hoping to get out of this particular exhibit. And I also would like to hear your estimation of, in the art world, how is this being received and how much attention is this getting? In the book that Marcia mentioned by Michael Mann, The New Climate War, the fight to take back our planet, he actually talks about how the blame is being placed on individuals when it's fossil fuel companies who follow the example of other industries deflecting blame. Guns don't kill people, people kill people, greenwashing. He very much talks about the culpability of the corporations. Just to talk a little bit about my work and what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to emphasize the intrinsic value of nature because everybody talks about the services say for instance the honeybee you know we're going to lose 30 percent of our crops right but very few people talk about the intrinsic value of all of these animals they weren't put on earth to serve us and yet because of our anthropocentric point of view we're in a use relationship with the planet. Those are Thomas Berry's words. I don't know if you know who he is, but he was my mentor for a very long time. He was an eco-theologian. And we have to change our relationship with the planet, or as E.O. Wilson says, 
all of the work that's being done now to preserve, and I want to talk about that a little bit. It's not all, you know, doom and gloom. There are things that I believe are happening that uh, that is a solution that's commensurate with the problem with the problem, and that is the Half Earth Project. But before I say that, you know, um, it, it E.O. Wilson said said that we need a fundamental shift in moral reasoning. And of course, if people aren't aware of what's going on, it's just like during the Vietnam War, all people had to see what was going on there. And the, the, there was an outcry to stop it because you had the press that was right in there showing these massacres, but we don't have that anymore. We have embedded journalists and stuff like that now. So I would like to talk a little bit about this Half Earth Project because it is, I believe, the only way we're going to stop this downward spiral. So just to give you a sense of the valiant efforts of conservation organizations, you know, both privately and, and publicly funded, it's only lowered the extinction rate by 20%. And although conservation works, it falls short of what is needed to save the natural world. So in other words, this is, an, this is from E.O. Wilson's book called Half Earth. Like an accident patient in the emergency room continuing to hemorrhage with no new supply of, of fresh blood available, we're basically extending life but we're, and we're postponing the inevitable, which is the death of the patient. So what the Half Earth Project is up to, as you might think, is preserving 50% of the Earth's land and sea for wildlife. A lot of people will just say that's not going to happen, but it actually is happening. And it's an amazing effort globally. And the plan is to preserve, restore, enlarge, and link swaths of biodiverse areas around the world. And if you go to their website, there's actually a map. They've got a map of the entire planet to show where these, these spots are that they want to preserve restore, enlarge, and create corridors between them because that's essential. Right now it's all fragmented. So creating corridors, and we need that, say like just, just for instance, on the border of Mexico and the United States with that infernal wall that was built by the last, you know, I, I don't even want to refer to him as a president, but there are animals that cannot migrate and they need to do that to mate. As the climate heats up, they can't go north. They can't go to higher ground where they could actually survive. So these corridors are terribly important and also to mate. You know how they tag these animals and this poor, poor wolf was trying to get across because there was a mate on the other side and he couldn't get across. And that means the birth rate goes down. In terms of what else my art is doing besides trying to put nature and other species in our hearts and to value them as, as much as we do ourselves. As every time I sell a painting, I donate 50% to the Center for Biological Diversity, who's one of the top conservation organizations in the United States. They're in court 24-7 saving habitat. Well, there's a direct connection, obviously, between that and raising awareness, your art and your create your creative expression. HalfEarthProject.org is the website that you were referring to with E.O. Wilson. So far, listeners are interested half-earthproject.org. Marsha Annenberg, there's one thing that we wanted to get to, 
that's an intersection between the work that you're doing on climate and the work you do on news censorship. And that is how these issues are received in artistic communities or in the so-called art world in general, where you've talked about censorship or lack of interest in these kinds of serious issues. Well, before I go into that, Mick, I just want to say that there's a way to resolve some of these issues that haven't really been widely discussed in the art or the media world. We need a public media system that's more engaged and better funded. You know, I just read a book by Victor Picard called Democracy Without Journalism, I believe it's called. And he's promoting, which I absolutely 100% believe in that, news is not a business. News should not be a profit-oriented enterprise. News is a public good. People need to know what the news is, who, what, where, what, why. They need to know what's happening, where it's happening, and it needs to be better funded. For example, the BBC is funded by a tax, a license fee that everyone contributes to. The American public is not really well-educated on these critical, critical issues that are going to affect our children, our grandchildren for years to come, for, for years. And we need to change the way news is gathered and reported and funded. I am so engaged in this. So I wanted to get that in. And my website is www.mannenberg, M-A-N-N-E-N-B-E-R-G.com, mannenberg.com, where I talk about these issues of media literacy and scientific studies that are not reported properly. As far as the art world goes, Mickey, to your question, the art world is not engaged in media issues or media censorship. I wish it were. I hope this starts a conversation. It's a critical conversation to have, and I hope this is the beginning of something new. Indeed. And Angela Mano, could you share with us a contact or website or places that people can see more of your work? Yes, thank you. Well, you can see more of my work online at angelamano.com. That's spelled Angela, A-N-G-E-L-A, Mano, M-A-N-N-O.com, all one word. And thank you for this opportunity to to speak. Well, it's my pleasure to have both of you on, and it's not my pleasure to have to talk, I guess, about the very, very critical issue that you all have been addressing, uh, rightfully so, for a very long time, and as you both mentioned, even before it was considered a climate emergency or a climate crisis. But we're certainly there, and your work, both of your work, goes a long way into raising awareness, not just around the climate crisis, but also around our news and ecosystem crisis. And we have to get information out to the public in a much better, more timely way so we can act upon the challenges that we face. And also so we can celebrate the many organizations and people that are doing things to address these crises. And I think it's really important to focus on people that are working to make a difference and make solutions so that we don't get overwhelmed with sort of an existential kind of angst, right? And people get, get so overwhelmed that they do look the other way right? because it's too difficult to see what's happening around us. Angela Mano, Marsha Annenberg, thanks so much for your work and thanks for joining us on the Project Censored Show today. Thank you so thanks much for, for having me. us, Nick. It's my pleasure. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we feature Earth on the Edge, 12 Artists Declare a Climate Emergency. This was an exhibit that took place at the Sirius Gallery in New York City, late 2021. I'm going to share excerpts from a panel from the opening of this exhibit at the Sirius Gallery. Please stay tuned for Earth on the Edge after this brief musical break. <laughs> 
so good to see you. There's so many people here who I love and admire. I wish we could get together like this every weekend. I mean it. I love you all. Uh, I know that this is a special audience. I know that you're part of the 26% of the American population that Yale calls the alarmed. I know that we're all alarmed at the speed with which global warming is progressing. For example, this summer, Canada reached 118 degrees. Who could believe that? We all know that we're living through a climate emergency. Earth on the edge is not a metaphor. It is a statement of fact. Our ecosystems are in peril. It's unbelievable to me that no one knows, not the government, not the scientists, no one knows that we'll be able to keep warming under 1.5 degrees. Why should it be a mystery? What is the difference between 1.5 and 2.0? Is the difference between losing 70% of our coral reefs at 1.5 and 99% of our coral reefs at 2.0? The difference between losing one-third of the Himalayan glacier at 1.5 and two-thirds of the glacier at 2.0. It's a huge difference. What are we willing to lose? What are we willing to give up? I was hoping that the recent climate meeting in Glasgow, COP26, would make this exhibit redundant and unnecessary. But that did not happen. Ten years ago, I organized my first environmental exhibit called Petroleum Paradox. I organized that show because I, I wasn't seeing climate art in the galleries. And actually, I was wondering if there was any around. So I wrote a proposal to the Women's Caucus for Art, which is a feminist art group. And then asked the eminent representative Eleanor Hartney to be the juror. And honestly, I was, I was afraid to send out a call for art because I thought maybe nobody would answer it. To make a long story short, 600, 600 people applied for that show. And Eleanor Hartley picked out 72 artists. So how much has changed in the past 10 years? I have to say not much. I was on vacation in September when the Armory Show came to New York City. Its bill was presenting the world's leading art galleries. And so I signed up for an online survey of the, of the works since I missed the show, and it was good. There were abstract paintings, there were figurative paintings, the quality was high, but something was missing. What was missing? There wasn't one work of art that related to the climate crisis that we are living through, <clears throat> as though one billion sea creatures hadn't boiled to death off uh, in low tide near Vancouver as if one-third of the koala bear population had not been lost in the Australian wildfires. As if 12 people hadn't died in their basements in New York City because of a rainstorm. There was simply no connection to reality. So in October, I was looking forward to the Art Dealers Association show art fair um, on Park Avenue. It normally shows very blue-chip artwork. But I decided that if I found one gallery out of 70 that showed climate-related artwork, it would be worth the trip. And that's exactly what I found. I found one gallery out of 70. It was called Corbett versus Dempsey. And one artist, his name is Omar Velasquez, his painting was called The Whistleblower. 
beautiful painting of a bird on a branch holding a string of a whistle. And that painting would have no meaning to you unless you also knew that by the year 2100, the Audubon Society has determined that two-thirds of North America's bird species will become extinct. So what does this all mean? If one art fair has no climate-related artwork, it's an anomaly. If two don't, it's a trend. Why? Why is it that artwork that addresses the greatest crisis to face mankind is absent from major art fairs and major galleries? I believe, in effect, that it is being silenced. I know that free societies don't silence their artists. So how free are we, really? Picasso once said, painting is not done to decorate apartments. It is an instrument of war for attack and defense against the enemy. We have many enemies. Dr. Michael Mann, the climate scientist who visualized global warming as a hockey stick on a graph, just wrote a book called The New Climate War. We are in a war against denialism, doomism, and apathy. It is a war that we cannot and must not lose. In closing this introduction, I'd like to remember the words of Winston Churchill that are pertinent at this difficult and very challenging time. He said, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, Victory, however long and hard the heart may be, for without victory, there is no survivor. Thank you so much. Our next speaker is Ellie Lesson. Ellie is a seasoned executive producer of international events for nonprofit organizations, national associations, and global I went to an event recently at the Ethical Culture Society. The people she brings in are so amazing. Uh, Al Gore, Mary Robinson, Bill McKibben, I list it goes on and on and on. Uh, spanning decades, her work is rich and varied, including the Women's Sports Foundation Awards, founded by Billie Jean King. She's worked alongside Gloria Steinem and the Miss Foundations for the Annual Gloria Awards. Highlights of her work with the United Nations are creative director of this historic inaugural launch of UN Women in the General Assembly Hall and nearly producing International Women's Day commemorations. Fortune 100 corporate clients have included MasterCard, IBM, AXA, and Bristol Myers Squibb and many more. Her environmental work includes co-founder of Drawdown New York City, annually co-producing a large environmental event, the first evening of Climate Week NYC that has been seen by thousands, climate reality leader, leader of Pachamama Alliance programs, member environmental committee of Rural Green Township, New Jersey. It's my pleasure to introduce you to the endlessly curious and totally indefatigable Ellie Lesson. Hi everybody, so great to be with you. It's very special for me to be here because I didn't know that Ceres was a feminist gallery. And I started out years ago, I don't know, I, I headed up a women's liberation center a thousand years ago when uh, Betty Friedan wrote a 
feminine mystique, remember, for those of you that are, that are old enough. So it's very special for me to be here today because of that, you see that my work is in alignment. Uh, also, the fact that you declare that this is a climate emergency is crucial. We all have heard people today talk about, why aren't people upset? Why isn't there more news? Why aren't people doing more? That's right. That is what I want to talk to you folks about today. Um, I am not a scientist. I am not an author. I am not an artist. But I am someone who's been able to be effective by in being involved in movements and the events that I have produced, being involved with taking ideas whose time has come and bringing them into reality with, of course, lots of other people. And that is what we all need to do today and in the future, not to mention leaving a world for the future generations that come after us. So an emergency calls for the emergence of not only doing the right things, as you were suggesting, that needs to be done, but I also think it calls for different ways of being and different ways of communicating so that we can create a movement that's so big and so large and has so many of us that we actually shift culture. We shift culture. So, Marcia, you were talking about the 24% of us that are alarmed, right? Let's go, let's get the rest of the people who are concerned and let's get the other large amount of people who believe that this is happening, know it is, but they're just a little bit disengaged. And that is what I, I think, that's part of what my job is, that's part of what our job is as we leave a world for future generations. I think um, the way I like to think of us See if this fits for you. Evolutionary activists. That we are being called to hospice the death of old systems that are totally breaking down, that don't serve us, and that threaten our very survival. And we have the opportunity of taking an evolutionary leap and midwife the birth of a new world based on an entirely different relationship with Mother Earth. Yeah, you like that? I like that. <laughs> Human beings always being in the center, putting ourselves in the center of things, right? And I've heard people talk about that we are children of God or, or, or something like that. And that's, and we hear people talk about that like we're special. The truth of it is, we're just the youngest of species. 
we have not evolved. And if we're going to continue, then we need to take on being evolutionary activists so that we wake up and do what needs to be done. So anyhow, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the game-changing work of uh, Project Drawdown and a little bit about myself and Drawdown New York City, which I am a co-founder of. Co of. And I also want to say that I think that the, um, you noticed that some of the work that we talked about was my work uh, with women. And I think that what's happening now is that some of the qualities that are, are normally associated with the female, with women, but available to all, like compassion, right? Like empathy, and that fierce determination of a mother's love or a parent's love, I think those are the qualities that will help guide us and take us to that place that we need to be at. I'll wrap up with some opportunities for you to increase your own participation. And, um, and I want to close with a very special, beautiful, artistic piece that I think you folks will love. So solving the climate crisis is an idea whose time has come. And so I thank you, Marsha. And I thank all these artists for bringing our attention to that fact in the kind of heart-centered way, in that kind of emotional way that really makes for action and makes for change. Thank you all. Indeed. Indeed. So my father loved astronomy. And in his retirement years, he volunteered at the Museum of Science and Industry. And he was so awesome that he was hired to create programs for young people. His reverence for nature and passion for science impacted so many lives. And he did it at the end of his life. So that's an inspiration to know that that kind of an impact can be made as we grow older. I swell with pride when I see the Women's Sports Foundation and the work that they've done to have been able to have been part of that evolution. Do you know when I started with them, young girls really didn't play sports. Now young girls play sports, we don't even think about it. It's a cultural norm. I was honored to be creative director for the inaugural celebration of the creation of a new UN agency called UN Women. And there I am with Ban Ki-moon, the former Secretary General. What a hoot. <laughs> and what an opportunity to do that. And since then, I've produced all of the International Women's Day celebrations at the United Nations. And I've brought two young women climate activists there now, two times in a row. And this is my dear partner and friend in crime, fellow producer Leanne. And we will be producing the International Women's Day in 2022. And guess what it's going to be this year? Great. Put it. There it is. Gender equality today for a sustainable tomorrow.
I'm telling you, this is, and this is going to be international, imagine doing what we need to do and bringing all of the 51% of, of humanity into the game. It's going to be very exciting. Um, I know the movement that we all are building, women and men, girls and boys. I, knew, I know that we can do this. As Greta says, right, Greta Thunberg, we must do what seems to be impossible. One of the things that gives me great hope is my work with Pachamama Alliance. My friend Lynn Twist is co-founder. It's an alliance, listen to this, of indigenous people of the Amazon and people from the modern world dedicated to preserving the Amazon, indigenous wisdom and culture and stewardship of the land. And Pachamama Alliance with the local indigenous people. There, there, there was millions of acres that are in this area and not a part of it has been, has caught on fire, has had anything extracted, no roads, nothing for 25 years that's been done. Look at that purpose. Dedicated to bringing forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, and socially just human presence on the planet. That sounds pretty good to me. So I, um, so let me give you a bit of history about Drawdown. Let me tell you about Drawdown. Project Drawdown is the most trusted source of climate solutions in the world today. And it is actually pretty new. I'll tell you how it happened. In 2001, Paul Hawken, environmentalist, author, and entrepreneur, was getting very worried. He was very worried. And he started asking climate scientists that he knew, hey, can we reverse this thing called global warming? You know, do you have a shopping list? Do you have a list of solutions? And the scientists came back to him and said, what a good idea. We don't have that expertise, but that's a great idea. So he kept on asking, but he found no one who had the expertise to do it. So he stopped asking because he did not have the expertise either. In 2013, Bill McKibben wrote an article called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. And it came out in Rolling Stone. And Paul Hawken decided, I'm going to take on the responsibility of doing that study. In 2014, Project Drawdown was born with a core group of only four or five people in a teeny little office in Sausalito. They amassed a huge collaboration of 70 researchers, 120 experts on climate, with scientists, lawyers, economists, and so on, and a three-year study commenced. What they found was that we could reverse global warming. 
getting there somewhere by mid-century, with already existing, economically feasible, and up and running solutions that were already in hand. Not easy, not the best odds, but possible. Here's the definition of drawdown. It's the future point in time when levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere stop climbing and start to steadily decline. It's a critical turning point for life on Earth. And Drawdown, the folks at Drawdown, they didn't create the plan. What they did was simply discover that people were already at work, hard at work, creating solutions. That's something that we all need to know. There's so many people out there working on amazing things. And so the book actually just reflected back to humanity. Our collective genius made manifest in the solutions that they discovered. And it also found, and this is really important, that working on solving the climate crisis and working in these, with these solutions also made life better, made people healthier, created a booming economy, and handled equity. Again, not easy, but that's what the promise is. When Lynn Twist, a Pachamama, learned about this, she decided to collaborate with Paul Hawkins. They created a course for people for people to learn about the solutions and about how they might participate. I kind of found what was mine to do. I said, okay. <laughs> Honest to God, that's the truth. I really thought that. Okay. And uh, I came back and, and I said, you know what? I want to bring Drawdown. I want to bring the knowledge of these solutions to New York City. And it, reminds, it reminded me, and I wanted to share with you, because if we're to change the dream of the modern world and do what we need to do to solve this problem, to create that large, biggest movement of, of mankind and solve this problem, we're going to need to be committed. And I love this quote by Bertha. The moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. Unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. And that is what's happened because a friend, Pachamama friend, said, Ellie, I want to do that with you. We did workshops all across New York City in people's apartments, in people's kitchens, <laughs> in hallways, wherever, wherever anyone would listen. And then one day, I did a presentation at the New York Society for Ethical Culture at three, or 350 NYC, and I met Monica Weiss, and she came in, and she was holding a drawdown book under her shoulder, and it was kismet. 
And Monica and I have done so many things together, and she gave us a home at the Ethical Society and many other remarkable people working on important causes, and we began to do workshops. One of the ways that I found out how important these solutions are to people was when we were asked to do something at um, Governor's Island. It was the year that Greta was coming on the boat to New York. Was that 2019, I think? Uh, and it was a beautiful September day. I think it was a Labor Day. And I was told, too, not, not a lot of people will be there. They'll come, they'll go in and out. And so we decided to feature the people that had taken our workshops and had gotten involved with some of the solutions. We set up the room for a very small group of people. Well, this is what's happened. That place filled up from one end of the room to the other. We were there for four or five hours. Not one person left. In fact, more people came. And what that taught me was how important knowing that we had solutions to this problem was and how deeply people cared about our earth and wanted to help heal it. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.